0: Well, good morning, guys. We'll pray. Uh, God, we ask you to quiet our minds and our hearts now that we can hear from you. Amen. One of the fun things about giving a sermon at New Hope is looking at your passage and trying to figure out why exactly Jason breaks things up the way that he does. So in this particular case, Jason sent me an email a few months ago and said, hey, do you want to preach on Romans 8:31 through 36? And so I opened a new tab in my browser, and I pulled it up, and I started reading. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, I know there are some people in this congregation um, who know Romans. And if you say, like, Romans 9, they're like, oh, Romans 9, right? I'm not one of them. But uh, I do, I have been around these verses enough that when I hear that one, if God is for us, who can be against us, I know that we're at the start of this long crescendo that's building up to a big payoff. I kind of start to hear the Rocky theme song in my head. And I thought, awesome! Jason is giving me the more than conquerors for I am convinced passage. That's a great one. I don't even really need to say anything. I can just stand up there and read it over and over for 25 minutes, and we can all just leave more encouraged. So I thought I'd start practicing. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that is when I realized that my passage was over. (laughs) And we hadn't gotten to the good part. And I also realized that I had no idea what that last part was, but sheep were being slaughtered that I think were supposed to be people, and it didn't fit into my sort of rocky theme song Christian victory montage. So I spent a few weeks just sort of sitting with this passage and asking God what there was to say about what I had always kind of read as the preamble, right? Like just the stuff leading up to the good stuff. And I lived a little bit of life during those weeks. I watched some people around me live some life. I watched some of you live some life. And I found myself coming back to this list of rhetorical questions that he sort of runs through in this passage. Now, Rhetorical question is one of those phrases we use a lot. What is a rhetorical question? That's not, That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Give you right. Yeah. So usually, often, that is it, that you know the answer. But rhetorical really means just intended to persuade or convince. So you can have a rhetorical question where there's only one possible answer. You know, the big thing in parenting these days is that you're supposed to give your kids choices. I don't always want to give choices. And so I find myself asking a lot of rhetorical questions. Eva, for lunch, would you like to have leftover pasta and meatballs or a bowl of rocks? Right? (laughs) Earlier in our Roman series, You may remember, we did, I think it was a four-part series, entitled Hell No. And each of the Hell No sermons was about a rhetorical question that Paul raised. And they were all the, do you want a bowl of rocks for lunch, kind of questions. They were things like, well, then should we just keep on sinning so grace can increase? Or, well, does that mean that the law is sin? And in each case, Paul's response was this phrase, Me Genoita, Am I saying that right? Eh, close enough. Um, Which Jason translated as hell no. I think most Bible translations say something like may it never be. Um, But it could also mean something like of course not, you moron. There's really only one answer to these questions. And if someone takes the contrary position, we know that we don't really need to take their response seriously. But that's not the only kind of rhetorical question. Sometimes, Eva beats me to the punch. Mommy, can I have macaroni and cheese for lunch? And if for some reason I really do need her to eat the pasta and meatballs, then I ask a different kind of rhetorical question, and it goes like this. Well, Eve, here's the deal. We could have macaroni and cheese for lunch, but we're all out of the Elmo kind, and it would take a really long time to cook, and I would have to be standing at the stove I couldn't play with you. Or... I could heat up some leftover pasta and meatballs right now, and we would still have time to read three stories before rest time. This is also a rhetorical question. I'm not asking because I'm curious about her answer. Does she genuinely want mac and cheese or pasta and meatballs? I'm asking because I'm I'm asking because I'm building an argument for pasta and meatballs. And I'm hoping that the logic I've laid out is gonna overcome her little three and a half year old, mac and cheese, mac and cheese, chanting in her head. Do you see the difference? It's not crazy to want mac and cheese for lunch. It doesn't, asking for it doesn't mean that she's a moron. And it doesn't mean that she's just trying to be saucy. When we did the Hell No series, Jason suggested that maybe the rhetorical questions Paul was raising there were, sort of quotes about what detractors were saying in the church. And what Paul was saying with this phrase was something like, if you're really going to argue this point, I'm just not even going to deal with you. So I told you that after I started looking at this passage, Romans 8, 31 through 36, I started thinking more and more about the rhetorical questions that Paul raises in this passage. And when I stopped playing the Rocky theme and I stripped out some of the persuasive language that he puts around these, I was left with five questions. This is when you can open your Bibles and look at it. Um, Can anybody tell me what the first question is? Yes. Right, but we're going to take out if God is for us. So the question is just, who's against us? Or more precisely, this means who's effectively against us? Who do we need to be worried about prevailing over us? What's the next one? The next two kind of go together. They're sort of a courtroom analogy. What are they? Right, who's gonna prosecute? And then what's the follow-up? Who's gonna judge? All right, and what's the last one? Right, who or what can separate us from Christ? Who's against us? Is God really going to give us all good things? Who's bringing charges against us? Who's judging us? And who or what is going to be able to separate us from Christ? These are not bad questions. Some of you may be asking one or more of these questions now. Some of you can probably look back on a time in your life, in your Christian life, when one of these questions was painfully raw for you. These are not the kind of flip questions that people are only asking to have a philosophical debate about God and back you into a corner, and that we're going to respond to with Meganoita. Paul even offers up his own alternative answers to this fifth rhetorical question. Some some alternative answers, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Now, this this list of troubles is probably not meant to be exhaustive of all possible things that people might worry about in their lives. It's Paul's list. These are things that Paul dealt with, that Paul encountered or was concerned about encountering. So, you know, 21 centuries later, living in America, uh, our list probably looks different. Persecution, um, not much of a concern for us here. But we do spend a lot of time worrying, especially recently, about random violence, about natural disasters. Uh, I don't think a lot of us in this congregation are laying awake at night worrying about famine or nakedness but we are probably devoting a lot of mental space to things like recessions and unemployment. But whatever the specifics of that list are, we can all pretty quickly come up with what we might worry goes here, right? God promised that he was working all things for my good, and yet here's this. So am I sure that I didn't misunderstand, Now, I'll be honest, I think New Hope does a better job of this than a lot of congregations. I think we're more willing to be honest here. But there is a definite tendency in the church to kind of shove this stuff under the rug, to move on from it as quickly as we can. Because we don't want to make it look like there's a crack in the armor. If Jesus is resurrected, if God is victorious, if his kingdom is inevitable, and if we are heirs to it, then we better fit whatever is happening to us into a story about a straight march onward toward greater joy and ultimate victory. And that is probably why I found myself having an entrenched mental pathway on this passage where I sort of zoomed through these questions building as just build-up for this broad proclamation of victory that follows. That's the better part of the story. But Paul, obviously, doesn't zoom through these questions. Why? Well, probably because he wants to make sure, before he gets to the big summary statement about why it's all going to be okay, that he makes clear he's not ignoring the reality of life and messiness and heartache and all the crappy things that happen to God's people. The neighborhood where I grew up is at the end of a long road. And it starts out as kind of a wide road that people usually recognize. Oh, yeah, I've been on that road before. And then it keeps getting smaller and more residential. And you hit this point where the county part of the road ends and it becomes a private road. And you aren't crazy if you think the road has ended and you turn around and call us and say, hey, I couldn't find your house. And so I learned that if I was giving people directions, I couldn't just say, continue two miles on Pot Spring Road. I needed to say, continue two miles on Pot Spring Road. You will think the road has ended. It hasn't. Keep going. What we have here is Paul's version of that, right? Before this passage, what he says is, I'm working all things together for good. And after this passage, he's declaring victory. But what he's saying here is, it will sometimes look or feel to you like all things are not working together for good. They are keep going. Some commentators have suggested that the way these questions are phrased, sort of the the tone of this passage, um, sounds like a liturgy, like something that maybe the early church would have spoken as a group. What's the purpose of a liturgy? Anyone? Why do we pick certain phrases and words that we repeat as a group? Yeah, right, right. Not because God needs us to say things in exactly the right way so we can't improvise, but because we need to put in our heads these right words. Um, It's sort of going through a liturgy nudges the way we are thinking about a particular issue towards something that's a little more precise, a little more cohesive, maybe a little more encouraging, maybe a little more convicting, We turn to the liturgy because as those words sink in, as we say them week after week or month after month or season after season, we unjumble some of our own understanding of really hard concepts. And that's what I think Paul is doing here. He's giving us a script, a rhetorical script, a persuasive script for how to work through these good questions. Because likely when these come up, they're going to be part of a big, fat, emotional mess. And the right answers or the right method of thinking that's going to get us to the answers is going to be hard to find in those moments. When my husband Dave ran his first marathon, he said that around mile 24, he was really second-guessing whether he was cut out to be a runner. Has anyone here run a marathon before? I was—I believed you. I was impressed, but uh, was mile twenty-four fun? No. Yeah. So on the sidelines, Dave said he saw what looked like a seasoned marathoner holding up a sign that said, "Remember, you love running." Why? Because a seasoned runner knew that at mile twenty-four, marathons don't usually seem like a good idea. And that brings us to this confusing, out-of-place, verse 36 of our passage. Now remember, verse 35 is who can come against us, can trouble persecution, blah, 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 blah. Verse 36 then says, just as it is written, in other words, I think this is evidence for what I just said. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So what in the world does this mean, and what is it doing here? Well, it's supposed to be evidence, backing up the claim in 35, and what Paul is quoting here is from Psalm 44. I'm not going to make... we're not going to go through the whole thing, but basically, Psalm 44 is a community lament. The first eight verses are about the victories that God brought to his people, giving him uh, praise for that, and declaring Israel's faithfulness for God. The next eight verses are lamenting God's abandonment of his people and related defeats and humiliations. Then the psalmist explains that it would make sense if Israel had been unfaithful or had broken the covenant. But in this particular case, they hadn't. They had been faithful. And that's what gets us to verse 22 of that psalm, where where the psalmist says, Yet. However, despite what I just said about our faithfulness, for your sake, we face death all day long. In other words, what Paul is saying by inserting this example from Israel's history of God's faithful people facing hardship is that this reality of how being God's chosen doesn't always feel chosen um, isn't new. It's not like a recent you know mess up in the system that we need to worry about. Doesn't mean that we heard Jesus wrong. Doesn't mean that we've been cut off. This is just what it looks like to live as God's people in a world that's not yet living in victory. In other words, crappy things are happening to you? Okay. We're still on plan A. Right? This is not an error. This is just what it looks like. Clearly, All things work together for good was not meant to mean that life was going to be lollipops and rainbows from here to heaven. So when it's not, lollipops and rainbows, don't panic. Keep going. When you're in mile 24 of the marathon and you're thinking maybe you're just never going to run again, all that means is that you're in mile 24 of a marathon. That's what mile 24 of a marathon looks like. You have to remind yourself that what seemed true before, I love running, is going to seem true again soon. You're going to love running. And you put one foot in front of the other. And here, what Paul is doing is giving us a script for how to mentally put one foot in front of the other. First question, we remember that God is for us. God is for us. No caveats. That's a pretty sweeping statement. So, In light of that, do we need to be worried about who else might be lined up against us? Are they really going to be effective? No. Now, remember that God rescued us by going so far as to sacrifice his own son. This statement draws us back to the story of Abraham, right, who almost sacrificed Isaac. Throughout Israel's history, that had been held up as like an ultimate example. Like, Abraham went that far. And what Paul's pointing out here is that God went farther. If God went that far for us, if he paid that high of a price for us, do we really need to worry that on some smaller issue, he's going to get cheap? That the reason he might be holding some good thing back from us is because he just doesn't want to, or it seems hard. Maybe it's not a good thing. Maybe it's not a good thing for us right now. Maybe something else is going on. But do we really need to be worried that the reason is just that God doesn't care and isn't bothering to try? And then, you know, we might ask, but I feel like I'm on trial. I'm afraid that when I go on trial, I'm not going to measure up. Well, remember, you're God's elect. He's busy being the one justifying you. Christ is busy being the one interceding on your behalf. If those two are lined up on your side of the bench, who's left to play the other roles in the courtroom? And finally, there's this thing I'm facing, this hardship, this trouble. Does the fact that it's happening mean that I'm not really Christ after all? Is it going to be able to pull me apart from this? Does this make it all unravel? No. This is how it's always been for people God has chosen. This is nothing to be scared about. Doesn't mean that it's all an illusion. It's just the present reality, and we still know the ending. We knew all of this intermediary hardship would happen when we said God is working together all things for good. So these are the mental pegs for clawing our way off the precipice. When one-line promises start to sound shallow or meaningless, right? When, when it all starts to sound like noise, we can't sort of figure out which way is up, these are the steps we go through. These are the points we go back to to sort of, work ourselves back through what you need to do is learn it now so that it's there when you need it uh we're going to take communion now and i'm going to bring up jason